cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, the Bristol Nets podcast on quant finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, quant finance editor of Risk. This is the last episode of the year and our guest is Igor Alperin, Senior Quant Analyst at the AI Center uh, for Asset Management at Fidelity Investments. Igor, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to see you, Maura. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Today's podcast is inspired by your latest work, Asset Allocation with Inverse Reinforcement Learning, which is online in Risto.net now. And uh, well, first of all, this is not a solo work. You have collaborated with uh, two colleagues of yours, right? Yes, uh, it's a joint work with uh, two colleagues of mine, Jiayu Liu and uh, Xiao Zhang. And uh, this is this is not new subject for you. You've been working on uh, uh, reinforcement learning for a while now. Uh, let me just remind here that uh, your previous paper on asset management with reinforcement learning gained for you and your co-author, Matthew Dixon, the Buy Side Quantity Year Award just last year. Um, We'll go back to that work shortly, but uh, let's first focus on uh, uh, your recent work. So what is the purpose of uh, of this paper within the asset allocation space? And uh, what, what is the problem that you're addressing here? Uh, well, th- this problem is a cause of a little celebration for me because this is something finally, uh, you know, uh, something that I was envisioning since 2018 maybe. Uh, and back then I had some chutzpah to, you know, come to some people and tell them, okay, let's do that. Even before I knew exactly how to do that, right? Uh, but uh, this is a part of the, you know, general uh, plan that I had. So uh, our paper with Matthew uh, was an uh, application of uh, the same uh, essential idea for uh, tasks of wealth management and uh, uh, retail investors. But uh, in this time, it's an application for uh, the task of uh, fund managers and for problems of asset allocation. The title of your paper mentions inverse reinforcement learning, but in fact, you combine inverse reinforcement learning and reinforcement learning, right? So. Uh, can you tell us how the uh, approach is set up? Yes, uh, it's set up in the, in, in the following way. Um, so maybe I should start with explaining what reinforcement learning is and what is inverse reinforcement learning. So reinforcement learning is a very general approach, I would say, to solving lots of problems in, in many applications of human activity, not only in finance, but my long-hold view is that most of tasks in quantitative finance are equivalent amount to reinforcement learning. So what it is? It's about sequential decision-making mm-hmm. over a period of time under uncertainty, right? So portfolio management or asset allocation are both uh, very good examples uh, of, of, of such problem, right? Now, in order to solve this problem, you have to start with what is called the reward function. So reward function is basically a a measure of your happiness uh, from taking certain actions, right? So uh, once you have the reward function, uh, you you know what you should do. You should maximize the total reward over Mm -hmm. your course of actions, right? 
Uh, and now, but that's the main question, right? So, so there are two essentially two questions. First question, what is my reward function that I should define for myself? And the second question, which is more technical, is how I achieve this, right? Uh, and in many problems in real life, uh, you have lots of data, uh, which refers to, you know, some actions of certain agents that they took. So you have data, which uh, like portfolio positions and trades, for example, right? But you don't know exactly why they did these trades. Right? And you can hypothesize many different reward functions. So you can say, okay, I want to be as simple as, you know, mean variance optimization, but maybe something more involved, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that's exactly the part which is addressed by inverse reinforcement learning. So inverse reinforcement learning, it looks at the same data, uh, but recognizing that we don't know the reward. We, rather, we want to find the reward from data. So what was the objective which was pursued by fund managers when they made uh, their trades, right? So and that's exactly what we did in this paper. So we constructed a simple model, very simple model, only four parameters, which kind of uh, gives you uh, maybe a little bit caricature, but still some valid representation of what portfolio managers do. And then we use their traits in order to find parameters. That's the inverse reinforcement learning part. Once we completed this step, we know what we have to optimize and, and our method actually goes beyond just mimicking what they did. It, it tries to improve on data, yeah. which is very important. So uh, in the paper, you say that here you are combining human and artificial intelligence, I guess, with, that refers to the fact that you are extracting information from strategies that are uh, applied by by uh, managers and uh, you're using that. So is that is that the case? Exactly right. Yes, exactly right. So this is what is done by uh, IRL part. So that's the big difference, you know, between problems that we have here versus, for example, like what people do at DeepMind with Alpha, Alpha Zero, for example, right? So they, to train the model play Go, they can simulate many, many millions of, of, of scenarios, right? Uh, but that's not our setting. Yeah. And uh, uh, so how does it work in practice? Uh, in practice, there are many, uh, this is still research work, right? So uh, we're still exploring uh, different uh, applications uh, of this methodology, but one way uh, we already described in the paper, uh, uh, and this is the following. Uh, so first of all, like what we presented in the paper is one particular approach to doing that. Uh, which relies on a certain way of uh, what is called dimension reduction. We, in order to uh, understand our system, we first have to collapse it into like something lower dimensional. And we've chosen to represent portfolios as simple allocations to sectors. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, now, uh, the output of our model is uh, uh, recommended allocation to sectors. Uh, now, in order to convert it into something practical, you have to take it further down to the recommendation about particular stocks. And, and this is right now we do outside of this model. How? We simply like we rely on simple thing. Uh, and this is pretty close to what people do in practice. We say if our model recommends, let's say, increased exposure to a particular sector, let's say financial sector, we just, you know, buy stocks with the best momentum in this sector. 
in the amount which is suggested by the model. Mm-hmm. And conversely, we do the opposite if our model recommends reducing exposure. So we sell the worst performance. Uh, and it seems to work. And uh, just to be a little bit uh, more specific on, on the application, you used, um, uh, if I remember correctly, six or 12 uh, sectors. So uh, six or 12 dimensions for that example. Six sectors, yes, 11, 11 sectors, yes. 11 sectors. Standard and industrial sectors, yes. I see. And just equity or can you go to other asset classes? We only looked at equity. The, the method itself, the methodology, the main idea of combining inverse reinforcement learning with reinforcement learning is very general. Uh, so you can use it for any asset classes. Uh, the only uh, input which is provided externally, uh, which we do not supply, uh, is the uh, uh, model for expected returns. For this asset class so if you have a reasonably decent model that you use for other applications maybe then you can also use it here mm-hmm. that's only and how how is this supposed to improve the performance of individual managers and in fact how do you uh, define improvement in this context uh well in the paper we showed improvement in terms of backtest right so we show that if uh portfolio managers that we we kind of you know my way of thinking about that is that we kind of learn from collective intelligence of all uh, fund managers in a certain group right so once we have a reasonably homogeneous group of fund managers uh which have the same stated goals and perspectives they have the same benchmark etc right we say Okay, what if we try to kind of condense what they do into like uh, essentially examples of of trying to learn the optimal policy, and then we get the reward function using this method, and then and then we uh, give them back recommendations of what they could do better if they followed our recommendations. So they would probably one way of, th- of thinking about that is that. Uh, it suggests some sort of debiasing of their uh, mm. of their views of their model. I see. I, so obviously, this sounds very closely related to the work you did with Matthew Dixon, uh, as you mentioned just earlier. Uh, what are the big differences? And there are two differences essentially. Uh, the first one is uh, targeted application. So in uh, work with Matthew, we thought more about. Uh, retail investors uh, and wealth management tasks like what retirees should optimally do before retirement, things like that. Uh, in, in this paper, we uh, mostly look into what professional fund managers do. Hmm. That's one difference. The other difference is more technical and it comes at the level of uh, particular IRL, inverse reinforcement learning algorithm that we use. Uh, so between uh, these two work, I came across something which I really liked, which was a, a, a new IRL algorithm that people developed in video games. Uh, and it has a very important advantages over uh, other algorithms, including the one that we used uh, in the paper with Matthew, uh, which is important to understand. So all these previous algorithms, they already assume that your demonstrated data is optimal, all right? Sometimes in robotics, it's a valid assumption. 
hmm. right? You can you can just literally check it. But in finance, you can never check it. So you can never say that you know you saw some trade performance of a particular trader or fund manager and it's optimal. There is no no such thing, right? So you can compare uh, different fund managers according to sharp ratio and things like that, right? So you can compare what they actually achieved, but you cannot assume that what they did was optimal. Uh, so the algorithm that we use is is of this second kind that that it does not make this assumption of optimality in your data, and exactly that's why it has a chance to actually uh, perform better than the demonstration. That's the important part, right? So the previous algorithm, they at the best they can only mimic what they've been shown, right? So it would be something like fund replication in the best case scenario if we relied on other algorithms. But here uh, we have an algorithm which captures the intent of what people did mm -hmm. and then further tries to improve over it. And it's part of the algorithm itself. Another aspect that you uh, you told me about is um, is the black box effect that you say is completely absent in uh, reinforcement learning because you can interpret what uh, you obtain. Uh, can you explain how that works? Uh, well, this is part of our design. So uh, the, the idea of, of uh, pipelining, converse reinforcement learning and direct reinforcement learning is of course very general and people do it in robotics, for example. Uh, but most of these applications, they, they use neural networks for both stages actually. Right, so neural networks are kind of black box algorithm. We don't really understand what's going on under the hood. Right now, our design, so our uh, general uh, uh, structure is the same. We pipeline inverse reinforcement learning with direct reinforcement learning, but both elements in our constructions do not involve neural nets. Okay, so they involve just linear algebra. So. Uh, all which is needed to implement it is not uh, deep uh, network uh, packages, but rather standard, you know, linear algebra packages like NumPy. Uh, okay, and, and that's why I call it white box because it's literally what it does is literally determined by formulas which are written, right? Mm -hmm. And you can check every step in these formulas and there are no uh, hidden uh, parameters, right? So all parameters that we infer are right there in front of you. And uh, you mentioned there are four parameters that allow you to yes, identify parameters. a strategy. What are they? Well, they basically the four parameters which describe your risk aversion. That's one parameter. Another parameter is uh, something that describes your cost. And we choose very simple, like convex cost function. And two more parameters which actually define uh, your running target, hmm. which you try to match. I see. I see. Um, and just to uh, recap, uh, what is the status of this uh, stream of research? Do, do you see this uh, as uh, closer to being a proof of concept or a product that is ready to go out and actually manage money? Uh, I, <laughs> I would see it as something in between. I think it's already in even in the current form, which is uh, in our published paper, it's already something that can be tried in practice. Uh, but it's definitely not the last word. So we explore uh, other versions of this and we do like more extensive tests and there are many different applications. So 
uh, it can be used as a, you know a helper tool for uh, real fund managers uh, in maybe a bit more distant future it can be used to set up a thematic fund hmm. uh, and it can be used by retail investors so there are many applications i see i see uh, you have uh, alluded to the fact that you have been uh, a long time skeptic of neural networks uh, but for reinforcement learning and uh, uh, investor reinforcement learning, you think the potential application go well beyond the asset allocation one that you presented here. Uh, can you expand on that? What other applications do you see? Uh, specifically to quantitative finance or in general? Yeah, qu quant finance. Yeah, quant finance. Well, as I, as I mentioned, uh, I think that, uh, you know, most of things that we do in quant finance is... Uh, does amount to reinforcement learning so what are the examples portfolio like eight like uh, all these problems of uh, you know asset allocation and portfolio management or wealth management are essentially versions of the same problem of dynamic optimization of some sort of a portfolio right under different constraints with different frequency etc right uh, so the same idea, like, you know, option pricing is actually also a form of dynamic portfolio management, because in this case, like according to classical uh, financial theory, uh, you know, hedging and pricing one option is equivalent to uh, managing a simple portfolio of one stock and one bond. Mm -hmm. right? so it's the same problem, right? Uh, but in, in most cases you have more than one stock and one bond you have some portfolios and you 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 should optimally trade in this portfolio right at, at different frequency as i said right so for systematic strategies uh you could use the same uh, methodology the same approach right so it's again once you define uh what is your uh, reward function what is your objective you just you know give it to some mm, reinforcement learning algorithm and 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 and, and hope that it will learn something. Basically, actually, this is like the part that was taken in my understanding by most people who tried reinforcement learning for trading or quant finance. Uh, and the results for many people were mixed, mm -hmm. exactly because it's a black box, right? So you cannot just take, you know, implementation of reinforcement learning, which was developed for video games change the inputs and, and, and give it real data and, and hope that it will work. Uh, sometimes it does work, but you know, the main challenge is that you never know when it works and when it doesn't, <laughs> when it switches, when it stops to work. I see. Uh, how does this approach compare to the standard fund replication? Um, I, I would say it goes one step beyond fund replication so fund replication is uh, is an old topic right so many people uh, looked into this and there are in my understanding some commercial solutions that do something of this sort uh so fund replication is a simple idea right so because uh, fund holdings are public data which is published like once a month or once a quarter what if i just look at what they did and repeat the same thing one month later right so yes i lose some information right but nevertheless like you know if funds have good long-term view right maybe i can can still write uh, you know write this wave uh, for free uh so this is fund replication what we do we don't do fund replication we rather say uh uh 
we learn from not just one fund, but from few funds, many funds, as many as we wish. And we try to kind of uh, find the, you know, first the common common topic uh, expressed in terms of this inferred reward function, which is the IRL part. But what's more important is the second step, which I mentioned before. Hmm. Our algorithm allows us to improve over what we saw, not just mimic, but improve. So it's not fun replication, it's one step beyond it. I want to um, talk about a topic that is, I know is dear to you, um, which is option pricing models. Well, uh, you you told me before that you think they are all pretty much wrong, which is a big <laughs> statement and an interesting statement as well. Uh, so what do you see as fundamentally wrong with the standard pricing models? Well, yeah, great. Thank you for, for this question. It's indeed uh, close to my heart. Uh, and like, you know, some people say that they wear few hats. And, and in this case, it would be my hat of uh, of uh, some sort of a closeted economic physicist, if you wish. Uh, but somehow it, it, it's related in a very straightforward way uh, to this reinforcement learning scheme of my work. Uh, now, but for this uh, part, you know, uh, I have many questions how to present it uh, appropriately, correctly, uh, because uh, like whether indeed should I say that they are all wrong or should I say that they are not even wrong, like, you know, this famous expression of, of Pauli about physics, right? And some people, that's what some people say about string theory, it's not even wrong. And the second question, like, does this critique applies uh, apply only to option pricing or, or more generally? Uh, but, you know, the funny thing is that when I started to promote these ideas, again, it was like a few years back. And I, I remember that I ran into uh, my ex-colleagues from JP Morgan uh, uh, at one of the conferences. And they asked me, so what's, what, what, what's new? And I told him, well, you know, I just found that uh, all uh, pricing models are wrong. And they looked at me like, oh, really? Okay. And then kind of quickly excused themselves and, 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 and left, <laughs> right? So so I understood that I probably have to thread this carefully in order not to, you know, uh, put uh, lots of reputation risk uh, <laughs> on this. Uh, um, yeah, but the, the story is indeed very interesting, I think. And somehow, like what I was uh, not uh, certain about so far is how exactly I should position this, because I think that like the first part of my activity gets some traction, but this part, maybe not, maybe less, uh, for reasons which are not quite clear to me. Uh, so in what sense uh, these models are wrong? Uh, so these models start with the famous uh, geometric Brownian motion model by Samuelson. And his logic was pretty simple and uh, we, we could say very kind of straightforward. Apparently there is nothing wrong with this logic. So what was the logic? That if you look at the evolution of stock prices, uh, then you can capture some, some trend and, and some noise, right? So what can be simpler than saying, okay, the trend is just a constant, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's either a constant or maybe like depending on how you write your equations, uh, if you write it in terms of price, then it will be drift will be linear function of the mm -hmm. price, right? Uh, and, and also volatility, right? But because it doesn't fit the data, right? It doesn't fit option prices as everyone knows, uh, 
people started to look into modifications of these dynamics, but only exclusively focusing on the volatility part, right? And it's, it, apparently it, it sounds reasonable, right? Because like, uh, indeed, what, what else we can say about the drift? Uh, but like to my surprise, what I found is that uh, starting from this work in reinforcement learning, when I tried to apply reinforcement learning to the market as a whole, right? Uh, thinking of all retail investors in the world by some kind of aggregate uh, collective agent, uh, which influenced market uh, dynamics. Uh, I came up with the eventual, the final model looked like similar to geometric Brownian motion. The main difference was in the drift. Uh, so my drift was a nonlinear function. Nonlinear function, which actually has uh, uh, roots in, in, in the structural dynamics that I embedded in the model, right? So what I embedded in the model was the fact that money is not conserved in the market, right? Which is like obvious statement, but somehow like it's not in the model. Everyone knows that, right? So everyone knows that every year the flows, for example, to S&P 500 uh, amount to about 1% of its value. It's, it's mm-hmm. not a number, right? And so there are flows and there are frictions from these uh, money flows, but they are not in the model, right? And, and, but in my model, they presented. So I started to think, okay, so what's the implication of this standard, uh, like standard geometric Brownian motion? What does it mean? It means the, the, the realism. So it's like, if you look at the equations themselves, they uh, imply something which, which does not happen in reality. So there are no stocks. You can't name me uh, a single stock, maybe one. Uh, late, uh, the late Peter Carr mentioned one stock, which actually has uh, 100 years of history. And then you can see that it grows. But most of stocks, they, they, they do not uh, you know, uh, unboundly grow exponentially. And, and moreover, there are no systems in the whole universe which allows this unbounded growth, right? So, mm-hmm. so this unbounded growth is a sign of instability. It's a local, like it's unstable dynamics actually. But we know that unstable dynamics can only uh, be sustained for short periods of times, not indefinitely. So the model was missing something, right? Uh, but the bad thing is that, you know, the model itself doesn't give you any indication where it's wrong. Like, you see, like 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 Newtonian mechanics, right? So most of things around us are described by Newtonian mechanics, right? And nevertheless, this this Newtonian mechanics becomes wrong when you deal with uh, you know speed uh, velocities which are close to the speed of light, right? So if you take Alice and Bob riding two light rays mm-hmm. uh, towards each other, right? Then Newtonian mechanics would tell you that uh, each one of them sees each, uh, another one with double, double the speed yeah. of light, right? Which is not the case. But you have no means to see this if you only look at the equations of Newtonian mechanics. You have to go beyond. So the same thing here. Uh, like if you have more general model which produces nonlinear drift due to interactions and imperfections in the market, then you can look back at the Samuelson model and say, oh, this is what was missing there, right? 
It doesn't mean that everything that we do is invalidated, but it means that the model itself, the first model, doesn't give you any indication when it becomes wrong. So definitely long-term options, like the, if you try Black-Scholes model for long-term options, uh, you get very wrong results. Everyone knows that, but this is the explanation. Right, and, and your approach is then fundamentally different from uh, the Black-Scholes setup. Uh, yeah, well, I bring two two things which were missing there, right? And two things which are kind of realistic, but in my view, they are critically important for get the final model uh, uh, less wrong, at least, or maybe right, hopefully. Right? Which are, again, money flows into the market and financial frictions from these flows. They were not in the classical model. And I have practical versions of this as well, right? So, like, I, I, I have few papers on that. And the first paper was probably harder to understand to financial mathematicians because I, I, I maybe I got overly excited and put so much stuff there <laughs> that uh, uh, it maybe became like hard, hard to read. Uh, but uh, the later uh, version was very much practical, and I hope is explainable in simple terms so like people who are not very comfortable with you know tools from theoretical physics they can just skip the introductory versions and focus on the on the practical implementation and it's pretty simple it's like basically the final version of the model which is approximation to all of my theory is that you have to take a mixture of three black shoals prices i see i see yeah. uh Actually, um, touching on the uh, physics background that you just mentioned, uh, I wanted to ask you how do you reconcile the tools from physics that are applied in finance and the data-driven non-linear approaches that are becoming increasingly popular? Yeah, great question again. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually very, you know, very happy of um, uh, with the this direction of work where my research took me over the last uh, few years, uh, partly because of uh, like, you know, when I came to finance, uh, I was uh, 36 or something and spent lots of time in academia. And it was like, I had this existential question, like if I ended up in finance anyway, uh, apparently most of stuff that I did in physics are not, uh, not relevant here. So why did I spend so much time there now? Uh, right and uh, uh, but uh, but on the other hand like when I came to finance I actually decided to do finance because I saw some papers by economists showing that tools from physics can be applied to finance uh, and can be used to draw some new results right uh, so this thing that I just told you about uh, about nonlinear drift and new mechanisms so new mech so this nonlinear drift implies several things and in particular it also implies some new mechanics for modeling corporate defaults and bankruptcies uh, and that was my very first project in finance uh, to to make sense of models and implement some model for bloomberg where i was at that time uh, some reasonable model of corporate defaults and once I heard about corporate defaults, I thought, oh, that's, I know what it is about. It should be about what is called instantons, which are like nonlinear phenomena, 
which are very popular in physics, but they require these nonlinear drifts, nonlinear facts. And so I thought, oh, this corporate default should be due to these beautiful instantons in quantum physics. But then, like, I quickly had to give up on this idea because I didn't see any nonlinearity. I, I was not aware of all these financial fictions, etc. So, uh, so there are many, but now I think that, like, you know, when it came back unexpectedly 20 years later, now I see more and more uh, uh, things where, you know, methods and tools from physics can be very, very useful. Uh, and so, like most of, you know, statistical physics, finite, machine learning, many approaches and, and methods in machine learning, they originated in statistical physics, right? And there are many other things which are still not very widely known to financial community. For example, one of the recent things, uh, and, and uh, I first heard about it from some of my quant uh, uh, friends uh, who are also ex-physicists, uh, tensor networks, right? Mm -hmm. So tensor networks uh, is something that, uh, so once he told me about that, I, 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 I did some learning and I really liked it uh, as a very interesting alternative to neural nets. In what sense? In the sense that, um, you know, uh, my view is that like there are two extremes. So uh, on one hand, we have classical financial models, which are all linear. And we just talked about that, right? Because they are linear, they have no chance uh, to describe complex systems. We know from physics, again, that all models which describe uh, complex systems are nonlinear models, right? Uh, so such things as, you know, uh, market in crisis, you have no chance to capture with linear models. Hmm. All right. Uh, on the other hand, we have another extreme uh, neural nets, which are fully nonlinear, and you you don't really know what's going on, right? You can't control it, right? Uh, you can easily confuse one nonlinear region for another one because you work with them. Uh, and such things as tensor networks, they strike a good mid road here, I think, because they they do have nonlinearities, but in a controlled way. So you have much better chance to understand what's going on to capture the most important things and, and to skip the less important things. So that's one application. What I do in this physics work is another approach of the same sort. So I end up with nonlinear models, but my nonlinearity has a well-defined origin and totally controlled. Right. And you mentioned a tensor network or tensor train, I think is an equivalent term. Yeah, TensorTrain is one uh, architecture in Tensor Networks. Yes. Right, which was the topic of the latest Quantcast, uh, in which I had uh, uh, Vladimir Peterberg and Alexander Antonov as guests, and uh, they've done uh, recently some uh, some big work on it, and which they published with us. And um, yeah, what do you think uh, would be the chances of something, a solution of that sort, to become more common in uh, in banking? um indeed that's a good question like why not everyone jumps immediately to this i, I think uh, one explanation is human inertia uh, another one is that like not too many people are aware of this it's relatively new topic even in absolutely physics. Yeah. 
right? So it uh, started to propagate machine learning community relatively recently. But I personally like this approach, and I even thought about that maybe like, you see, this is complementary to what I do. I mostly focus on reinforcement learning, uh, uh, but a, a tools such as either uh, neural nets or maybe tensor networks are kind of building blocks, potential building blocks for what I do, right? Because they, 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 they serve a very specific goal of building some, providing some function approximations. Uh, and I really hope that at some point maybe I'll I'll get back to tensor networks as well. <laughs> that actually leads us to the last question I wanted to ask you today, uh, which is, what what is your next project? Is it something along the line of what you just said, or is it more uh, precisely into the reinforcement learning uh, sphere? Uh, uh, all of this, uh, yeah, simultaneously to, to the best of my ability, right. But I, I'm very interested recently in multi-agent reinforcement learning. Uh, so which is even like more exciting uh, on many counts than, than single name reinforcement learning, which I did so far, right? Uh, again, most of quant finance applications are applications of multi-agent uh, settings. Uh, so that's uh, one direction. Another one, which is again like uh, uh, the second head of mine, uh, uh, also for multi-agent uh, reinforcement learning and single-agent uh, reinforcement learning. There are still many tools in physics hmm. uh, which can be productively used, right? Uh, computational tools. So, so some versions of multi-agent uh, systems, multi-agent reinforcement learning, actually amenable to treatment using uh tools from physics such as Schrodinger equation right uh, and so and uh, j just to understand uh better a multi-agent reinforcement learning is a agent-based model in which each agent is uh driven by reinforcement learning so it's got its own reward function yes that's exactly right that's the basic difference between uh agent-based models and multi-agent reinforcement learning. So basically, what's the difference? The difference is that when people deal with uh, agent-based models, they're just, you know, it's just simulation. So you, each, each model is, uh, sorry, each agent is given uh, uh, like a directive, what to do prescription, hmm. but they're not adaptive. They don't learn. Uh, on the other hand, uh, in the reinforcement learning setting, they are, they becoming like more intelligent and they learn. So over, you know, course of development of dynamics, they can absorb what's happening in the system and adapt what they do. Fantastic. Uh, but uh, what other projects are, are on? Anything else? Well, that's, that's more or less it. As I said, uh, maybe uh, one day uh, also we'll, we'll come across again uh, Tanzan Networks. Uh, I had some uh, quantum computing is definitely something like, but this is like, for me, it's a, like perpetual, you know, perpetual, <laughs> like perpetual bond. It, it never comes to uh, uh, experience. Right? So. <laughs> Fantastic. Igor, thanks very much for talking to us today. It was very, very interesting. And thanks everybody for listening. <laughs> <laughs>